Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by, I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples upon me. Selah. God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. Those are the first three verses of Psalm 57, which along with Psalm 56 are the psalms appointed for today, Monday, November the 1st, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We have today, we're continuing our look at the book of Nehemiah in chapter 6, the first nine verses, um, also in the book of Revelation, chapter 10, the first 11 verses, and in Matthew's gospel, chapter 13, verses 36 to 43. So let's get started um, on the Nehemiah passage. Uh, remember, they're, they're building the wall. Nehemiah has everybody working and uh, also prepared for battle in case there's an attack that happens because there have been many who have uh, purported to want to stop this work. And so he is constantly prepared for war while continuing the work. He's not allowing that distraction to completely stop the work. It's certainly going to slow it down, but nonetheless, it's amazing what you're going to hear in a minute about how quickly they rebuild the walls of the city. So now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. In other words, we hear all these things. Um, uh, we're not saying from whom we heard them. We, it's just reported. And Geshem, by the way, he, he says this too, that, that you're intending to rebel. That's the real reason you're building this wall. You've deceived the king. And you intend to set yourself up as the king there, which means that the king isn't the king. And so we think this probably is something that needs to be told to the king. But why don't we talk about it first? It's unbelievable, but it's so typical. I mean, early in my ministry um, here in Asheville, I had a, um, a couple of people in the church who would do the same sort of thing. They would come to me with these weird and unsubstantiated rumors, just bizarre things sometimes. And they would say, we think we need to let the bishop know about this, um, but, but let's talk first. Well, the bishop was a close friend. And so I knew what this was about, and I was not going to waste my time with these guys. And they would do it. They would write letters to the bishop. One of them wrote letters to the bishop week after week after week, accusing me of all manner of weird things. Um, like I had been ordained into some Celtic 
denomination sort of thing. And I, I was there. One of these guys was um, he was a, a supposedly a Celtic priest, and so they were going to ordain some guys. And I, they invited me to attend the ceremony, and I did. And the bishop asked me to come up. He said, "I'd like to pray over you too and bless your ministry." I said, "Certainly." So later, this guy makes some weird claim that that I had been um, ordained. And then later, another thing that I had been somehow deposed, and, and he signed these things, or the the letters that came were signed by the quote bishop who prayed over me that day. Well, the reality is, is that by the time this guy wrote those letters, that man was no longer a bishop, no longer even affiliated with that church. He forged his signature and signed these ridiculous things. And said, it's just so I get it. Um, and, and it's it's a matter of wanting to destroy somebody. And so, so he responded, Nehemiah did, and said, no such things as you have say have been done, for you're inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it won't be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah prayed these little prayers. You know, it's one of those things that I've got people in my life who will pray eloquently and forever, um, as opposed to Nehemiah, who just, he was in constant conversation with God, so he didn't need to catch God up on everything. He just prayed as he went along. He says, now went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home. And he said, let's meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let's close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. I mean, this guy's making a—Nehemiah's making a pastoral care visit on this guy, and he's setting him up. He's trying to set him up and ruin his name. He said, but I said, should, should, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I won't go in. He, he's, I'm not a priest. I can't go in there. I don't know what you're talking about. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. He had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose, he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophets, Noadiah, prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. These are Israelite people who are doing this. And then he says, so the wall was finished on the 12th, 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. They rebuilt the wall in spite of all this stuff that's been going on. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. In other words, it got, it got done so quickly and so well that they knew that it could only be because of God that it happened. And so the enemies and the nations around were afraid because they knew God was with these people. Moreover, in these days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son, Johanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the daughter of Berechiah, as his wife. And they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. I mean, his biggest problem that he faces here is an internal problem with Tobiah. So not only does he have enemies without, with Sanballat and Geshem, for instance, but Tobiah is in league with them and causing problems in the nation because many of the nobles of Judah were bound to him. 
It's just, it's an amazing thing, and you see it over and over again. It's always the case whenever God calls you to a work, you're going to have problems inside the camp and outside the camp. And the problems inside the camp are actually much greater problems than the problems outside. You can ignore the ones outside, but you've got to deal with the stuff that's inside. And so, <clears throat> Nehemiah, I don't, it's, it's an amazing thing that this man accomplished all that he did in the time that he did. It took um, everything to do it, and it took a, a great leader to make this happen. In the gospel today, remember Jesus told the story of the wheat and the weeds, and now they come in and the disciples ask him to explain it. And he says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they'll gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. I mean, it just, it's just about as straightforward as you can possibly get from our perspective, that, that understanding of the parable of the wheat and the weeds. As I told you, the weeds grow up and they look exactly like the wheat while, they're, while it's growing. It's only at the harvest time that you can tell one from the other. And, and he says there'll be those kinds of people inside the church. And it's people like we just talked about in the Nehemiah story. There are people in the church who are not there for the right reasons. That They look like this, that, and the other thing. They look like Christians. They, they, they can hold themselves out as Christians, but inwardly there's something wrong. And it's only at the time of the harvest when, it's, when you're able to see that thing. And, and with, with the guys that I mentioned earlier in my own life, you know, it became incredibly obvious who these people were, and they had been leaders in the church. I, I had made a mistake. Well, not made a mistake. I didn't know many people. When I first started, obviously, I didn't know many people here. We were starting a church. So the only people I knew were the people who had been gathering week after week with me for about a year. Um, I, I would come here from Paulie's Island every other week and have a service. And so the people that, that were there were the people that I knew. And so I named those people leaders and then later found out that, Wow, uh, some of these people are, are definitely wolves, and and it caused great upheaval in the church at the time that it finally came to a head. Because w- what caused it to come to a head was we were just within six months of of having new elections for leadership, which would have been the first election of new leaders, and these guys would have been moved out of those positions. Um, one of them used the church to commit tax fraud, and the other um, just was the worst liar. I mean, just about everything that I've ever seen in my life. And so the problems inside the church are, are frequently the bigger problems and the things that, that have to be dealt with, but they, they can do more damage inside than they can outside. You can ignore most of the stuff that happens outside, but the things that are inside are the ones that really cause the damage because it turns the hearts of the people away from uh, legitimate leadership because of lies. And I've seen it happen at the denominational level. I've seen it happen at the parish level. And it's just um, a horrible, horrible thing. And so, but, but Satan has the, de- you know, the devil is what Jesus calls him here, the Diabolos. Um, it, he is setting into this situation, in this teaching, it, there's a difference in um, 
in the way that we understand Satan and the way that that uh, Jews understand Satan. And here you get the, sort of the beginning of that understanding, although the work of the Satan, because it's Hasatan, the Satan in uh, Hebrew, the, the work of the Satan is to tempt the saints. It's, it's to tempt people in order that they might be strong and that maybe be able to stand up to temptation. But here, this is a deliberate thing where the people that are being placed in the congregation are put there by the Satan. And so there's more to it than, than this impersonal, the Satan thing going on here. And Jesus is beginning to, to bring in that teaching, that, that Satan is actually an adversary in, in rebellion against God and against God's people. So that's what you see in this, and and we have to be generous, and we have to be gracious, and we have to do exactly what Jesus said here, which is to wait. We have to wait. We, we can have an impression, we can have an idea, we can have what we believe to be a word from the Lord, but we have to take our time and be careful with that, because we don't want to be wrong. We do not want to be wrong and falsely accuse anybody, no matter what they're doing to us at any given time. In the Revelation passage, he says, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like that of the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand. So you got this huge angel. I mean, this thing is enormous, as you're going to see in just a second, with a little scroll in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. God's God of everything, the sea and the land. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. The seven thunders would be the seven different types of thunder in, in, in the Jewish mindset. There would be seven different types of, of almost everything, because that's a perfection sort of, uh, the number itself denotes a perfection. And so the, the seven thunders had sounded, and, and, and in those seven thunders, there's a message. And John gets the message, and he's about to write it down, and then the angel that's with him, our voice from heaven, says, don't write that down, which is exactly what happened to Daniel. Daniel saw and heard things at the end and then was told, I can't tell you what those things are. He wasn't allowed to. God told him to seal it up. And here, the same happens. And the angel who I saw standing on the sea and land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what's in it, the earth and what's in it, and the sea and what's in it, that there should be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So there's, there's some things that John saw that were revealed in this vision that he's not allowed to share with us. And so we'll see those things when they come to pass. But John was, for whatever reason, not allowed to tell us what he saw and heard. And then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, the one that told him to seal up what had been what the seven thunders said. <clears throat> he said, go and take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. I mean, this thing is big enough that it's got a foot on the sea and a foot on the land, and it's stretching out his hand to heaven, and it's holding this little scroll. And John's told to go and take that scroll. Remember, before there was there was the one 
seated on the throne with a scroll, and nobody was found who could go and take that from him until the Lamb comes. And so now you got that same kind of scene here, but the angel is more fierce and frightening in some ways because of his size than even the one seated on the throne would have been. And so John's supposed to go and take it from him. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. So John is told to do exactly what Ezekiel was told to do in his day, which is to take this scroll and eat it. There was a hand that appears, a disembodied hand that appeared to Ezekiel and provided him with the scroll that he was to eat. And John here is given this scroll by this enormous angel and told to eat this thing and it'll make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it'll be sweet. And it's because the words of God are always sweet in our mouths, but they can often contain a bitter message. And that bitter message can be conviction of sin, and it can be condemnation for sin. It it can be God's judgment against sin. And in both these cases, you see the same thing. And I've talked to you before about this with the prophetic temperament that Abraham Joshua Heschel talked about, which was that 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 a prophet must align themselves with God's holiness and his righteousness and his agenda. But at the same time, hold that intention with his identity and his identification with the people to whom the message is given. And so, so he is to see himself as one of them who, who happens to have been given a job and a representation of God to make to the people, but he also then re, re, um, intercedes for the people of whom he is one to God. And, and so Jesus is the prophet better than any other that's ever been, because he is fully aligned 100% with, with the Father, but at the same time, he has great sympathy with us because he was one of us. So John takes the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it in my stomach, it was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and na- nations and languages and kings. And so it, it's never an easy thing to... Truly divide the Word of God, because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and and it is there to heal, to cut, and to heal. The conviction of God comes in order that He might heal us. And, And that's the way we have to deal with people in the church, and we have to remember the parable that Jesus talked about, that that the enemy planted those people there. And so the enemy is the devil. The enemy is not the people. It's the devil. So we have to fight that spiritual battle at the spiritual level. And so we've got to speak the words of God into those situations, whether and let the chips fall where they may. That's the bottom line on how we deal with these issues.